0: There's a little uh, prayer we used to say before meals. I don't know if it's uh, lost, uh, it's, uh, it's um, um, what's the word? It's popularity, but it, recite it with me if, if you know. I, that doesn't mean we have to eat right after. We're just, It's just practice here, but uh, it starts out, God is great. God is great, God is good. Now we thank Him for our food. By His hand we must be fed give us Lord our daily bread how many learned that as a kid yeah not a whole ton a few of you how many have taught your children that already yeah okay all right you know you, it's it's a little sing-songy uh let's just admit it it's all rhyming as best it can um but uh I will say the theology when you drill down on it is pretty good God is great. We talk about that a lot in the church, about the sovereignty of God, the immensity, the the creator who, who called the universe into existence. God is great, and he's also good. He is good. He is faithful again and again. We have received from him kindness upon kindness, I believe, and apparently Tim Keller believes this too, because on Facebook this morning I saw a post from Tim Keller and it went right with this, which is kind of neat. Um, the greatest sin, one of the, one of the key sins uh, at, the, at the very heart of sin is a doubting of the goodness of God. And when you go back to the garden, what was it that, that Satan was whispering into the ear of Eve and, and Adam? Adam. Yeah, okay, you want this thing, you, you, you desire this thing that's forbidden. Yes, that was, that was part of it, but how, what was the tactic he was using? Did, did, yeah, did God really say, does, is God not going to give you, look, how much, he didn't give you any good stuff. Hey, he, he told you not to eat this? Why, why, why doesn't he want you to eat? Because he knows, you know, yeah, greedy, miserly God, he knows if he shared it, that you would be like him and he doesn't want that. You know, so God, the, the whole way that Satan is going at it is to suggest that God is not good. And that has remained a pattern ever since the fall. Today, I think one of, of the greatest temptations that we face collectively. I think it is built into our culture. I think you watch TV, you watch movies, you read a novel. This, this idea is, is, is constantly being pumped into our heads that God is somehow mean, that God is begrudging, that God wants to just ruin your life. I think a lot of unbelievers, that's how they understand it. Like come to Christ, have your life ruined. Uh, You know, uh, you have all this wonderful goodness in sin and God's gonna take all that goodness of sin away from you and you're just going to be absolutely miserable. And I honestly think that it creeps into the heart of believers. We don't confess that, we don't say that, but I think if you hear it often enough, and pretty soon we can find ourselves as believers kind of thinking that. Kind of thinking, well, you know, at least there's eternal life. Not that I know whether I'll enjoy that eternal life with God, seeing how he's such a curmudgeon. Who wants to spend an eternity? No, we don't, we don't actually give voice to that, do we? But I think it, it just strikes at, at the very root uh, of our spiritual health when we don't believe that God is Good. Now, let's, let's catch up to where we left off. John Mark just left them at Perga at Pamphylia. And uh, you remember that old Perga at Pamphylia. Um, they'd gone through Cyprus. They, got to the, they basically arrived at the coast of Asia Minor. That was Perga at Pamphylia. And John Mark deserts them. And this was not a, a good thing. This was definitely not a planned or good thing. From there, they're going to go 120 miles inland inland. And from sea level, 3,600 feet up to get to Antioch where they're headed. And, uh, and this was not good for Paul. Listen to what Paul says to the Galatians. And this is, understand, they are going into the region of Galatia as they travel up to Antioch. That is the region of Galatia. He writes to the Galatians just some months later. He says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. How many have ever even noticed that? It was because of a bodily at, And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. And that's not just a, well, I'm just going to use a figure of speech. You would have gouged out your eyes. I think there was something going on with his eyes, right? And and, and there was an ailment. People have put this together before, and they've suggested and it's, it's at least probable that what he's talking about was malaria. It was, a, it was malaria of a certain kind that existed. It still exists, obviously. But uh, what, what happened apparently, if we put it together, or more probably we could say, is that Paul was suffering when they got to Pergut pamphylia, And he had to get to higher elevation because to go from sea level up to higher elevation would bring relief to these problems. And, and, and John ditches him right at that point. Can you imagine if you had like a, how many of you have had a migraine headache in your life? Two of you, okay. Uh, they're, they're really awful. Just picture the worst headache you've ever had if you've never had a migraine. Picture a migraine, let's throw COVID in on top of it, just for good measure. You've got COVID, you got a fever, you got a migraine, and then this, this guy that was supposed to carry your baggage goes, see you later. Huh. And that's kind of what Paul Uh, was dealing with at this time. So, anyway, they they go 120 miles, they get to Antioch. You say, well, I thought they just left Antioch. You would be correct. Um, It's not the same Antioch. Try this on for size. There were 16 Antiochs at that time in the world, and there's a reason for that, which is all very historical and probably boring to you, so I won't say why. But anyway, yeah, so they're in that region around Galatia, that's the book of Galatians. They find a the synagogue. They go there on the Sabbath. Everything is running kind of in typical synagogue fashion, as you're all probably familiar with, so I don't need to spend any time with that. Um, synagogues where the Jewish people came together. If they didn't live in Jerusalem going to the temple, they would go to a synagogue. It was a local meeting of Jewish people. They had a kind of a liturgy of sorts that they went through with blessings and prayers and, you know, I, I don't know what all, some high fives or something. that was part of it, I'm sure. But, uh, but then they would read. They would read the Torah from the books of Moses, that is, and they would read from the prophets, and then they would just sort of look at the men of the congregation who were in good standing and, and, and maybe educated, and they would say, who wants to say something? And somebody would get up and do what I'm doing right now. They would give, they would give a message. Apparently, it was a good-sized congregation because it says rulers, not ruler of the synagogue, and they, they send a message to Paul, it says, which I guess, I don't know whether they wrote it on a piece of paper or whether they whispered it, but they said, hey, Do you have anything encouraging to share with us? Like, we're out here in the boondocks. We're so far away from the homeland. Here you are. You're a big, you know, rabbi, educated. You've been in Jerusalem, and you know what's going on there. And is there just anything that you could say whatsoever that might be good news? Got anything good for us? Can you imagine Paul's thought at this point? Do I have any good news for you? (laughs) Well, <laughs> let me, love, love, let me, uh, let me uh, think about that for a second. Uh, and here's the big idea today. God's goodness should prepare us to believe the gospel. God is great. God is good. Knowing the goodness of God to us should have us completely understanding and ready for the grace that comes to us through the gospel. And this is what Paul does. He takes them back. On a journey, we had a 10-point sermon. You're like dying. You're like, we haven't even gotten to the 10 points. And he's still flapping his gums. We're going to move really quickly through this, okay? You ready? There's ten, there are 10 things he points out of God's goodness to bring them to the goodness of the gospel. First of all, God chose them. God chose them. The God of this uh, people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. You ever remember a time when you were chosen for anything? I mean, other than a spanking or something like that. I'm talking about something good. Have you ever been chosen for something good? You're racking your brain, like did your spouse choose you? Maybe they had to run through a few other people before they got to you, but, you know, eventually they chose you, or somebody invited you to the prom or the Sadie Hawkins dance. Or Do they have Sadie Hawkins And Yes? Okay, I wasn't sure about that. Um, you know, maybe you got sp- chosen for. It's, it's a wonderful thing to feel chosen for whatever it might be, for, for people to believe that for whatever reason, you are just perfect for this, for this thing. Israel could say that it was chosen of God. It wasn't because they earned it. It wasn't because they deserved it. You could look at Deuteronomy 7 and God says, I didn't choose you because you were this great people. Like, you were just the smallest of all people. I didn't choose you for that reason. Then you go to Deuteronomy 9, and he goes, I didn't choose you because you were a righteous people. Yeah, I chose you because of my covenant, because of my covenantal relationship to you. We who come to Christ can say the exact same thing about the goodness of God. If you know Christ today, you, according to the book of Ephesians, were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. How good is that? How good is that? How good was it to be an Israelite, to be chosen, to be part of that people? God is good. God multiplied them greatly. See, we're on to number two already. Paul says God made the people great, and he doesn't again mean qualitatively. They were not, you know, uh, Tony the Tiger, terrific, great, you know, whatever. Um, in fact, um, he's talking just about numbers, about their numbers. When they went down to Israel, uh, down, down to Egypt from Israel, what were they? Seventy or something, souls and all, um, they go down there and, and they just they populate. Four hundred years is a long time to get to populate, but they really po- they outpopulated the Egyptians. They got to the point where the Egyptians are like, oh no, this is this this slave people, these people we've enslaved, they're getting to be too many. And that's when Pharaoh says, let's kill the first you know, the the, the male children. And uh, he he devises to do that, which of course the the midwives chose to disobey. That was a good thing. That's how we got Moses. The people of Israel blossomed, and they, down to this day, they, I mean, six million of them died during World War II, and yet they are still going. They, they, they've taken a licking, and they keep on ticking. They are still there, and that is a wonderful testimony to the goodness and faithfulness of God, isn't it? I would say so. The same can be said of God's new covenant people. The, the church is exploding. And has been for, you know, for 2,000 years, the church has been growing. It's been like that leaven working its way through the lump. You look at places like Iran, where you haven't had the uh, um, legal preaching of the gospel for decades. And the church there is growing. Supposedly, there are millions of Muslims that have been coming to Christ recently in the Middle East. I heard that figure. I can't verify it. Uh, it, it, it well, <laughs> you can't probably measure it, but it's an amazing thing. God is good. The church is growing. It is becoming great. Thirdly, God delivered them from bondage. They were slaves in Egypt, but verse 17 says, with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. It's always funny when men, uh, you know, talk about their guns. Yeah, I, I would flex, but I, I, this shirt I just bought. I don't want to break it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know why you're laughing. Uh, but it's always funny when <laughs> someone... Okay. Um, it's always funny when men joke about that, isn't it? But what, what are they saying? They're saying, I'm big and I'm strong and I can, I can do you know, heavy lifting or whatever it is, right? That's, that's kind of the idea of that. Here, God is depicted as having a mighty right arm he, with an uplifted arm. Is that saying God literally has arms? God is a spirit, the Bible says. He doesn't have little arms. When it speaks of his arms, it's talking about God using his, his power and for Israel, the exodus being brought out of Egypt is like it's the high water mark of God's goodness to them. I guess you'd say it was the low water mark in another sense. But, I mean, this, this was the defining moment that, that Israel looked back to where God just redeemed them in the, it, with power, with the ten plagues and, the, and, the, and like a million people or close to apparently walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. That was God's power on their behalf, delivering them. Paul is reminding them of that one more time of this deliverance. They went from a a people enslaved for 400 years and God came and rescued, delivered, saved them, brought them up by his mighty right arm. As believers, we can say the same thing in a different way, right? Paul writes to the Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He took you out of sin and darkness, enslavement to sin and to the devil and death, and he brought you into the kingdom of his son. How good is that? God is good. God is good. God put up with them. I love that part. How many here have put up with anyone ever? Do do you understand? You probably, this is new to you. You're like, I don't know what that means. Except the married people. The married people understand it. And the parents. Um, Maybe the children, too, to some extent. But what does it mean to say, what does it mean when you say you put up with someone? it means they are not really living up to their end of the bargain. They're they're not behaving in a way that that you consider appropriate. It's it's bad behavior, but you are allowing it. You're, You're continuing with them. You're staying in relationship. You're not giving up on them. You're putting up with them. When did God do that? It says, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. want to talk about a stiff-necked stubborn people in fact when you look up the word stiff-necked stubborn people don't you find the people of Israel pretty much right there in illustrated form that I mean they practically invented the word stiff-necked they'd done all kinds of things you know with with God up to the point that they came to the promised land remember that they're just willful and stubborn. They get to the promised land, and he's like, okay, go in now. And the 12 spies come back, and they're like, nope, we're not going to go in there. There's giants. And God says, okay, wonder for 40 years. And they go, you know what, I think we will go in. And God's like, don't go in now because I told you you've got to wonder. No, I think we will go in. They go in, they get pulverized. Then they end up wondering. You think, well, now everything's good, right? No. Do you remember Korah's rebellion? That came after. That came during the 40 years. You you talk about the temptation at the waters of of Meribah. That was another one of those. Numbers 21, 5. Here's another time when they were just complaining against God. It says, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Wait, I thought there was no food. Oh, yeah, there's food. But you know what it is? Manna. We don't like the manna. We want our manna sent back to the chef. Because we are not happy with the bread of heaven. Doesn't that go right back to what we, where we began? Give me an encouraging word, Paul. What can you tell us? Has God ever been good? Is there anything good about God? Huh, let me think about this. How about bread coming down from heaven that you threw back at him, and yet, even though you did all of those things, God put up with you. Even at the point he was about ready to extinguish you when the the serpents came after that little bit, um, he gave you the bronze serpent lifted up so that those who looked to that serpent would live. You remember the story? God put up with them over and over, David put it this way. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He puts up with his people. And Israel should have known that. What Paul is telling them, it's just, this is probably the thing they taught their children from the youngest age. Everything he's saying, they should have seen and they should have understand. And all that goodness up to that point should have led them To see Jesus for who he was and to to receive the gospel. God destroyed their enemies. It says, after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Which seven nations were those? Like, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it sounds like a termite. Um, You are correct. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of and clears away... Many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gersites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And God did it. He he cleared them out in front of them. Now, do we look at that as modern people? Do we look back at that and go, yeah, that's evidence of the goodness of God, that he wiped out those people? We're more inclined to go, wow, was God good that he did that? He absolutely was. He, he absolutely was. Now, on, on the one hand, they were bigger and they were stronger than his people, and so it shows the goodness of God, just that they were able to defeat these people. But recall the reason that it had taken 400 years of enslavement in Egypt before they were brought back to the land is it took that long for the Canaanite for the sins of the Canaanites to be fulfilled. They were evil. These were people who actually gave their children uh, to their gods in the fire. Are we capable of looking at that, at that defeat of their enemies, and still saying that this is evidence of the goodness of God? God delivered his people. God delivered them. He destroyed their enemies. And we have the promise of, in Christ that all of our enemies will be destroyed as well, don't we? Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that if, you, if you've got a, a beef with your neighbor that God's going to drop a meteorite on, on his house or something like that. But, but the last enemy to go is going to be what? Do you remember that from your New Testament? Death. Death. Death itself will be swallowed up in the victory of Christ. God gave them the land. God gave them the land. We saw that. Verse 19. It is hard for us to grasp as Christians just how central the land was in their whole understanding of, of God's goodness it, it, was, it was that which God had promised to Abraham when he left Ur of the Chaldeans and Haran he brings him to a land that I will show you it's, it's central to the covenant that God made with them and when you look at the land the land is like a uh, is the term reprise or reprise in, in music I don't even know maybe Brian knows but I don't know. Reprise. We're going with reprise. Okay, let's say reprise. It's like that in, in, in music when it comes back and you get this theme that keeps coming back. There's this theme in scripture. You've got God's people living where? With God, in God's land, under God's law in, in, that, in that sense. So that's what's happening here. Again, they, they, like, like the Garden of Eden, God brought them back To The land that land flowing with milk and honey and that land was a constant to be it was to be a constant reminder of the goodness and faithfulness and love of God. It was an emblem of grace to them. Here Paul speaking to a group of people that were far away from the land. At that point, they, long, they like every good Jewish person today, they have that heart for Israel, that, the land of Israel. They, they would have had a heart, and they would have understood exactly what he was saying. God gave them judges. How many are thankful for the judges every time you read that book? It says all this took about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. I don't know about you, but every time I get to the book of Judges... I'm sorry, isn't that one of the quirkier Old Testament books? You know, you get through all this, everything's just making sense. and You get the law, and the law is spelled out so specifically about what they're to do. And then you get, you know, through Joshua, and, and you enter into the time of Judges, and it's just like, where, where did every, what happened? Like, what, dude, it seems like they don't even know the law anymore. And what did they do? They just kept again and again and again falling into sin, in rebellion, and what would happen? An enemy would come along and start to oppress them, the Midianites and the Philistines and people like that. And every, again and again, God kept bringing these men forward, these judges, who were all pristine in character. Have you ever read the book of Judges? <laughs> Not so much. Samson, just I, you read about that guy's life, you're like, that guy was a train wreck. But God kept bringing these deliverers to deliver his people whenever they became desperate. Here's this pattern that you see of, uh, of oh, returning to God, being delivered, falling into sin, <laughs> becoming oppressed. Reach. If any book of the whole Bible should have gotten them ready for the gospel, it'd be the, it'd be the book of Judges, wouldn't it? Because again and again, God has to rescue them. God gave them Saul. Saul was a mixed blessing, wasn't he? Those of you who know your Old Testament, it says, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So the pe- what, what happened was you went through these judges. You get to Samuel, who's like the last judge. He's a prophet. He's a, he's a judge. He's, he's um, kind of a priest as well. And you get to him. And all at once, the people of God say, okay, Samuel, you're getting ready to die here. You're an old dude. Uh, we don't like your kids very much. So give us a king. Why did they want a king? Because they wanted to be like all the other nations. We're tired of doing things the way God's been doing it. and We didn't like this whole judge period either. We thought it was kind of chaotic. So let's, let's have a king. And Samuel didn't like it. And God's like, you know what? They're rejecting me. They're not rejecting you. And so he gives them a king. He gives them Saul. And Saul was everything a worldly king should have been. Do you remember the description of Saul? He was tall. I don't know why tall should be a particularly good factor, but he was, <laughs> he was tall. He was good looking. He was a warrior. He just had, he was a, I mean, he was a man's man kind of guy. You just throw spears at people for fun, that kind of thing. Um, Everything the world looks for in a king, that was Saul. And yet, he failed, didn't he? he? He didn't completely deliver them from all their enemies, though he was a good warrior in many respects. And the, the key thing, he was not able to lead the people spiritually. He was a horrible example of a spiritual leader, of obedience to, to God. And yet, Paul says, this is part of the goodness of God. He, ga- he gave them Saul. In a way, he gave them Saul almost so that they would see, by negative example, what they needed in a king. And that's when he gave them David. God raised up David. It says, And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. In David, we have something truly remarkable. On the one hand, that original desire and demand for a king came from an evil place, didn't it? So how did God take that and turn it into what he turned it into? It's an amazing story. I mean, it it was totally coming from the wrong place, a fleshly desire, and yet God gives in. He gives them Saul, and then he raises up David, a man after his own heart, a perfect man, Oh, some people are shaking their head. Not a perfect man, but a man after God's heart. He was a man who, for all his faults, loved God, desired God, sought the things of God. He led God's people to the point where, where all of their enemies were defeated. He led them spiritually to us uh, to seek after God. And so God enters into a covenant with David, and that covenant would be that, that a, a, a descendant of David would rule on David's throne forever. God raised up David. It's interesting that he says it that way. What do you hear when you hear that word raise? It kind of reminds you of the resurrection just a little bit. It also reminds us that it's God's work that raised David. David did not raise up David. The problem, of course, is that the Old Testament then ends with no Davidic king. And that, like, everything about this that, that Paul is telling them, they're aware of, and it brings up this thorny mess that they had, and that was that they'd gone through all of these promises and all of this experience and all of the goodness of God, and where does the Old Testament end? It ends with the book of Malachi. Malachi. And in the book of Malachi, we talked about this not that long ago in another context, but in the book of Malachi, it says that there's a day of the Lord coming when the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Do you remember that? And then it, then it goes on to say before that day that Elijah will come and he will prepare God's people. Point by point, the Old Testament shows forth the goodness and the mercy and the faithfulness of God, and it's all preparatory, and it brings them to this last point. Hoo-hoo, there we are, number 10. God brought them a savior. God brought them, of this man's offspring, talking about David, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Of course he would do that. Of course he would do that. Paul, do you have a word of encouragement? Man, things are rough right now. Ooh, we can't think of anything. Maybe you can think of something. Anything? Anything at all? Anything encouraging? Well, let me think. Yeah, there's something good. How about the whole history of how God has dealt with this stubborn, disobedient people and how he's put up with you and and how all of this has led to, he draws out the first nine points are like this big goodness funnel. Like goodness, 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 expectation, more goodness, Jesus. Huh? Isn't that right? Christian, do you trust God? Do you trust God? I don't just mean believe that God exists. You know, It says that we have to believe that God exists and that he is what? A rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In other words, we have to believe God is good. Has God been good to you? How many of you came here today harboring complaints and accusations against a holy God because you don't like the manna anymore? I'm just sick and tired of this. I've had manna up to here. Just take it back. How many? You said, no, I would never feel that way. But but isn't it true that we fall into that? When has God been good to us? Oh, how about when he called you? Before the foundation of the earth. How about when he awakened you to the gospel, drew you, showed you his grace. That is, opened your eyes. Others around you are still blinded by the devil. But God, in his grace, through the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit, opened your eyes and you beheld and you saw the grace of the glory of Christ in the gospel. Amen? Amen. Was that good at all? And then he he took you and and he brought you and, and, and put you within a church, within a people of God, who love you and support you and encourage you and affirm you in your faith, and you're on your way to glory. You're on your way to eternal life. How good is that, Christian? But we are just so, we understand the the devil still plays the same game. And, And even if he can't keep you from trusting Christ, even if he can't take you sort of out altogether, if he can just sow in your mind and heart the idea that God is really kind of miserly, kind of grudging, then, that, then that's enough right there, isn't it, to just completely rob you of all fruit. If you're not a Christian, you probably do suspect that God is mean, that God is withholding. You dread the idea of coming To the Lord, because somehow, even though your life is a train wreck and and everything's going wrong, somehow you really firmly hang on to the idea that there are certain things in my life that I could never let go of because they're so good. And God would take those things away from me. You know what? Anything God would take away from you, you don't need. He knows what's good for you. He is a loving father. He has given this this world, this, this crazy fallen world, He has given His Son. To come into this world to die for sinners. So that if you turn from that and look to Jesus Christ, if you see in him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and you lay hold of that, you will be saved. God is good. God is good. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we know our own sin and it's pretty easy, Lord, for us to to see it in this passage, in this light, because we are often like the children of Israel where we've received so much good from your hand and yet we grumble and complain. We've received the bread of life come down from heaven and somehow, Lord, we don't find our satisfaction in it the way we should. I pray, Lord, that... Not only that you would bring conviction of sin to our hearts, but Lord, that you would just open our eyes anew to see how truly good you are and how genuinely blessed we are. And Lord, help us to live in that satisfaction and, and to have our strength flow from that. And Lord, we pray that, that there might even be today someone who is in darkness that would suddenly see that, that ray of light streaming down that they would look and see Christ and see his goodness and be drawn to him and believe in him and be able to leave here today saying that the Lord is good. The Lord is good. In your name, amen.